James chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 to 19. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we as your people can gather to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. We praise you as we've been seeing from the book of Romans that our justification before you is by faith alone and Christ alone. Father, help us to understand this relationship between faith and works, and may all that we say, do, and think here glorify you. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. How many of you went to the Chuckers game last night? I can tell because I see that long look on the face of some of you who stayed to the bitter end. They asked me to throw out the first pitch, and I was over in the food line, and I didn't want to do that. And so... <laughs> I saw Chris Randall's right there, and I said, hey, this is your man right here. And so they asked him, and he's like, yes! And so he threw the first pitch, and I have to say, I was very, impre- I was very proud that, <laughs> that, that he did so well. But then he came, when he was done, he came over where I was sitting with Carrie and uh, Igan, and he came over and, and handed me the ball. And I, so I sat there, and I was like, Yes! Praise the Lord. And I sat it down and threw some trash away and came back and the ball was gone. (laughs) And I said to Carrie, I said, hey, what happened to my ball? And she smiled and she looked at me and so kindly she said, but you didn't earn it, did you? I said, it was a gift of grace by faith. (laughs) That's where we're going to continue to talk about Romans. So why in the world are we reading from James Chapter 2 is because it, it appears that Paul and James have a disagreement about this issue of being justified by faith alone. And so we're going to talk about the relationship between these two passages today. Now, you need to know there are three doctrines in the first century in the Christian faith that the Jew in the first century had a really difficult time with. They had a really difficult time embracing three doctrines. The first one is the doctrine of the incarnation. And the incarnation is the doctrine that the Old Testament God, who goes by the name of Yahweh, he is Israel's God, has been embodied in flesh in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth. That was very difficult for them to embrace that doctrine. When they got to Ezekiel 34, which prophesied that very thing, they honestly, Jews did not even know what to do with that passage. They didn't even know how to interpret that sort of passage. But here it is unfolded in the New Testament era in the first century, and the Jew is having difficulty with it. They also had difficulty with the idea of the atonement. As we have talked about in Romans chapter 3, the idea of Christian atonement where God has now, apart from the sacrificial system, that is to say, in fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle, God has welcomed Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, into his family by the means of his son's death on a cross, his sacrificial death. You need to know in the first century that was a really difficult 
doctrine for them to embrace. And the third doctrine is this idea of justification by grace through faith in Christ. That was really, really difficult for them to embrace it. Some Jews in Paul's day had inherited a long tradition of seeking righteousness by their own works of obedience to Moses' law. Put simply, for them, there could be no salvation, there could be no righteousness apart from a self-justifying act of goodness on their part. And they had a hard time with Paul's teaching on this and the New Testament teaching on this. So my main thought today is, is that I think correctly interpreted both Paul and James, chapter 2, are largely united in their understanding of faith and works and the relationship of faith and works to justification. However, there is an apparent contradiction. There's an apparent conflict between them, and I want to put it up on the screen so you can kind of see where the crux is. I want, I want to show you where the rub is here. It's Romans 3, 28, where Paul says, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Yay. <laughs> James 2, 24, so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So now how do we reconcile this apparent disagreement? Well, Paul and James use the same terms to address two different problems. That's the first thing I want you to know. Paul and James use the same words to address two separate issues going on in the church. Number one, on your outline, if you're following along, Paul is addressing works without faith. And James is addressing faith devoid of works. So Paul is primarily addressing a, a kind of works-based, self-justifying religion that has set aside the principle of faith in favor of this idea that I, of self-righteousness, that I can make myself righteous before God by strict obedience to the law. And Paul is critiquing that problem. And James is addressing faith that is utterly devoid of any works at all, right? Now, notice how James frames the subject. He asks the question, can such faith save him? Who and what kind of faith? So that tells you there that he is talking about some kind of faith that actually can't save you. James 2.14, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? Again, if someone claims to have faith but does not have any works that accompany that faith, can such faith save that person? The answer is no. Now, James is focusing on a person who, who makes a claim. This is a claim to faith but shows no evidence whatsoever in their lives that that faith is real, that it's alive, that it's living and active in them. Now, Paul is clearly concentrating on a different audience with a different problem. Look at what he says in Romans 9, 32. This is as clear as it can get. He said, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. The Gentiles, by the way, weren't even looking for it, not remotely. He says, the Gentiles who did not even pursue righteousness before God have, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So you see here that Paul is addressing a system of religion that has set aside the principle of faith in favor exclusively of a works righteousness, and James is addressing a different problem. He is trying to address 
people who claim to have faith but have no evidence of works in their life. And so Paul is here in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 9, denying the need for pre-conversion works, while James is insisting on the need for post-conversion works. It's very important to understand that. But the second thing here that we see is that, number two, Paul uses the term faith broadly, and James uses it fairly narrowly. So Paul is using this term faith in a broader sense. Typically, he uses it to encompass all of its multi dimensions, but James has already told us that he's zooming in on one aspect of it. James has already told us that he is zooming in on one particular aspect of Christian faith that is just not complete. Now, historically, Christian theologians would agree that Christian faith is multidimensional. The so-called faith that James is criticizing here is no faith at all, or at least it's incomplete. Now, if you read the chapter in context, here's what you'll find. James criticizes a faith that panders to the rich and ignores the poor. Well, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, look, when you have your meals together, you are not to preference the rich while the poor sit there without any food at all and no one sharing with them. Paul addresses this exact same issue in 1 Corinthians. James also denies a faith that is mere pious sentimentality. Oh, go in peace, be warm, be filled. You see someone comes to you with a material need in their life, and you just say, oh, Lord bless you. I'll pray for you, brother. No. Well, Paul also would not stand for that. Paul doesn't know any faith that would not result in working towards someone's good, benevolence. And James also rejects a so-called faith that is mere profession of what one believes. It's a profession of one's belief system. And I think Paul is going to crit critique that kind of faith as well. So there are three dimensions to Christian faith that we need to understand today, and they're part of the Christian's experience in belief. The first is faith as agreement. Faith as agreement. Faith as agreement is belief that something is true belief that something is true. James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one, good, full stop. Is it good to believe that God is one? Or is it wrong? What's well, good? There is one God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, which means before beginning began, God was. He existed. And the Jewish and Christian belief system says firmly and strongly there is one God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, all creation. You believe that? Good. He goes on to say, though, but even the demons believe that. Do you know how orthodox Satan is? I promise you, Satan and his angels are more orthodox than you and I. I promise you, he understands exactly what kind of nature God has. He knows God very well. And I promise you, read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. If the rulers and the powers of this world had known what Jesus' sacrifice on a cross would mean for them, their demise, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. I guarantee you he knows all about the cross. I guarantee you he understands the doctrine of Christian atonement very well. 
So orthodox beliefs are foundational to Christian faith, but mere orthodoxy, listen, cannot save you, would not save you, because right belief is only one, the vital dimension of Christian faith. And it is vital. Look at what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11.6. He says, now faith, it is, uh, without faith it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the author of Hebrews affirms that faith involves believing that something is true, that God does exist and that God will do what he said he would do for the believer. The Apostle John agrees with this in John 20, 31. He, this is the purpose statement for the entire Gospel of John. Here's what he says. But these, that is the signs I wrote about in this book. They are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We believe that Jesus is the person he claimed to be. And, of course, Paul agrees with this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him, when he returns, those who fall asleep in Christ. So faith includes a cognitive dimension. There is an intellectual agreement. We affirm these things. That's part of Christian faith. But James wants to tell us, listen, even Satan, even the demons agree with you that these things are true. So there's a secondary dimension of Christian faith that we must have. Faith as trust. Faith as a trust. And that is belief in something. It's not just believing that something is true. It's putting your faith or your trust in someone. So more than believing that Jesus is God's son, that he's God's savior, that he's our Lord, we believe in the person of Jesus himself. We don't just believe true propositions, we believe in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who died for us and was exalted and is now seating at the right hand of the Father. John 1, 11 through 12, here's how John said it. He came to his own, that is the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. So what's the problem? They rejected Jesus. But to all who received him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. We don't just believe that this is true. We believe in the person of Christ Jesus, and by doing so, we receive him. We have a trusting relationship with him, right? Paul also affirms this in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him that is the person of Christ in whom there is salvation and there is no other will not be put to shame. My dad was deathly afraid of flying. We heard about it ever so often. Ever so often growing up in my house, my dad would say, you'll never catch me on one of those planes. I would never fly. And one day, I distinctly remember sitting in the living room floor, this is in the 70s, and I'm watching our big screen, 13-inch TV. I think the TV weighed 200 pounds. And uh, back then, you kids may not believe this. Look this up. Google this. This is true. Back then, televisions had what are called dials. <laughs> and in order to change the channel, you had to kind of wrench it. Clunk, clunk, clunk. You know, remember that? Now, I was sitting, that day, I was sitting this far from the television. <laughs> not because I couldn't see, but because I was the family remote. Right? 
And my dad, I'm not kidding, he would lay on the couch and he would say, change it, Jeffrey. Like between every commercial, see what else is on. So I would clunk, 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 and I would just wrench it. And he would say, stop. And I would hold it, and he goes, go back. <laughs> and I'd go back. And then we had these things called um, rabbit ears. <laughs> these are metal antennas that sit, they sit on the top of your old TV, and they come up like this. And uh, Dad would, uh, once in a while, a television program you'd be watching had a little snow in it. it was, we just called it snow, a little fuzz. And he would say, get up, Jeffrey. Move the antenna. And I'd go, yeah, Daddy. I would get up, and I would move the antenna. He would go, Stop. Now hold it right there. And I would have to hold it while he watched his show. <laughs> More than once I stood beside the TV watching the TV like this. And I remember distinctly I was sitting there watching this program. I don't know what program it was. I can't remember. But it was some program where an airliner was coming in and making a landing. And as this 737 came in to make this landing, my dad piped up and he said, you'll never see me on one of those blankety-blank things. And I said, why, Daddy? And he said, just look at the wings. And sure enough, the wings were trying to negotiate the, the turbulence. And, but then it landed. I said, but look, Dad, it landed safely. He goes, not me, buddy. I'm never getting on one of those things. Now, what was my dad saying? My dad was not saying that he didn't believe that planes safely land and take off every single day. Of course, that's just undeniable. He was saying, I don't believe in them. I wouldn't trust myself to it. You're never, I'm never going to buy a ticket and walk down the corridor and get on that plane. Understand that Christian faith is not, though it is important, believing in, article, in our articles of faith. It's not just a checklist of doctrines that we affirm. That's important, but we entrust ourselves to Christ. We put our faith in Jesus. So intellectual assent is important. But Christian faith is more than a matter of intellectual agreement. It's trusting your life to the God who can do for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. And there is a third dimension to Christian faith that is, that is a necessary outworking. Faith is faithfulness. In fact, I challenge you to go into the Old Testament and try to find any verse in the Old Testament that translates the Old Testament word for faith as faith. Most often you'll find that it's translated this way as faithfulness. And this is belief in action. Paul told the Galatians in 5, 6, Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. It doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or not. What matters is faith working through love. Now, this is Paul, not James. This is Paul saying what matters is the fact that you and I possess a real faith. It is a faith that believes the truth and believes in the person who is the embodiment of truth, who has, we have put our trust in the one who is the truth, and that faith results in action every time because it's faith expressing itself in loving God and loving people. Listen, the nature of faith is that it's alive, and living things move. The nature of faith is that it's alive and living things move. I lived out in the country in Virginia growing up, and once in a while we would just have to remove from the backyard uh, a carcass of some kind. And over my childhood, I removed many, many dead carcasses of lots of critters. We had critters, right? That's kind of a southern thing, but we had them. And uh, once in a while, you would find we would get, there would be a dead possum in our backyard. Now, what do you know about possums? 
they play possum. And they're really good at it. And so you never knew whether or not the possum was dead or alive. And daddy would always say, grab that possum, throw him back in the woods. So we, whatever the carcass was, we'd have to throw it back in the woods. And then whatever was out there just ate it to nothing. And, but the first thing we would do is walk up with it and kind of poke it with a stick. And man, I'm telling you, if you've never seen one playing possum, they really look dead. I mean, deader than a doornail. And so you'd poke it and you go, that thing's got to be dead. So then you pick it up by its tail and all of a sudden that possum comes alive and he starts scratching and clawing his way out of your hand and then just, I mean, like a jet just j runs into the forest, you know. Ah, oh, memories. <laughs> and then the rest of the day would be at the ER getting rabies shots. It was so fun. Listen, living things move. That's the nature of the thing that's alive. It moves. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Hebrews chapter 11, watch this. I've just, that's a great chapter. Read that whole chapter. But here are just a few snippets, a few samples of what he has to say about the nature of living faith. He says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Now, he doesn't say by faith, Abel cogitated and philosophized about what constitutes a better sacrifice. He doesn't say that. He says, Abel's faith made him offer a better sacrifice. In verse 11, by faith, Noah built an ark. If you believe and you trust in what God says, if you believe that God is true and you believe in the one who told you a flood is coming, then you're going to build the boat. Speaking of Noah's faith, the French reformer John Calvin stated this, the faith he had in God's word was turned into the obedience to God, which was demonstrated in his building of the ark. Perfect. Here the apostle points out the obedience which flows out of faith as water from a spring, from a fountain. In Hebrews 11:8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed and set out for an undiscovered country, and he offered up his son Isaac. This is what... Faith does. The nature of faith is that it works. It's living. It's alive. It moves. And this is what Paul says to Pastor Titus in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. He says, he poured out, God has poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, praise the Lord, we may become heirs with the with the hope of eternal life. And this saying is trust, trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the Christian life. These are the good and profitable for everyone. So there's no sense in which the New Testament authors, including Paul, thought that faith was mere intellectual agreement with propositional truth statements. No, in their writings, they could not divorce the issue of faith from its immediate and necessary effect, belief in action. In their writings, they could not divorce their understanding from faith from its immediate and necessary effect, belief that takes action. So when James says in verse 17, in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is itself dead. This is what he means. Dead faith isn't alive. It's incomplete and it's not real. It's just a belief statement that God does exist. You believe that God exists? Good 
Even the demons believe that. Number three, for Paul, faith is the only means of being declared in the right. That is justified. That's what justification is. Justification is being brought before the bar of God's justice and being declared pardoned, standing in the right. So for Paul, faith is the only means of being declared in the right. For James, works are the only means of demonstrating. One stands in the right. So someone may claim, I stand in the right, but how do you know? Well, look at their life. If their pro- professed faith has had no effect and no outworking into their Christian life, chances are that person's faith is not legitimate. That person's faith is not genuine. And so for Paul, justification is the declaration of the believer's right standing. It's an initial declaration that's fully sufficient, and he cites Genesis 15, 6 as his example, his evidence for that. Genesis 15, 6, he says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And as we learned last week, God did this before Abraham had anything to obey. He did it before Abraham had any works. He did it before Abraham had the law. He did it before Abraham had circumcision. And all of the promise of faith that was implanted in his heart in Genesis 15, 6, from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22, gets worked out. And you see it demonstrated clearly. That's what James is talking about. Okay, James, for James, justification is demonstrated. It's shown to be true, verified by a believer's good works. Now, James also quotes Genesis 15, 6, but James quotes that passage as a summary of Genesis 22. So even though Genesis 15, 6 comes before Genesis 22, he says, that's how it was fulfilled. That's how you know it's true. Genesis twenty-two twelve. he says, for now I know that you fear God. This is God speaking through the angel of the Lord. Since you have not withheld your only son from me. If you remember the story, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son. God says, take your, take your son of promise. Take him up the mountain. Now I want you to sacrifice him to me. And read that story. Abraham doesn't flinch. He doesn't even, he doesn't say, why do I have to do that? Now, earlier in Genesis chapter 15, he does. As Ryan pointed out last week, he has some questions, but then God still credits credits, uh, faith to his account, righteousness to his account by faith. But in Genesis 22, when he's told, take your son up the mountain, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't bat an eye. He just goes. And he takes his son up and puts him on an altar. He builds an altar and puts his son on the altar. And the inference of the text is that Abraham is on the way down with the knife. And the angel has to stop him midway and say, stop. Now I know that you fear the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God knew that in Genesis 15 when he first met, when he first introduced himself to Abraham and said, Abraham, here's the promise? And Abraham believed the promise, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Yes, God knew it back then, too. But his faith had to be burnished. It had to be tested. It had to be shown to be true, to be legitimate. And so how do we know this is James' focus? How do we know that James' focus is on the demonstrative effect of works? Well, he uses three words here. James 2.18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me. Right? He uses this word, which is the word dignumi. 
And degnumi means to, to bring out into the light that which is hidden, to reveal or to disclose the thing that you cannot see. And he says, you, you, you say, I have faith. One says, I have faith. One says, I have works. Well, show me your faith without works. In other words, you can't. And I'll show you my faith by my works. James's burden is to establish how genuine justifying faith is evidenced in the life of the Christian and how it is shown to be true in the believer's life. Look at verse 22. He uses two more words here. He says, faith was acted together with his works, and by faith uh, was made complete. Now, this word for made complete is the word teleao, right? It's where we get the word telic. It's where we get the word telos, right? And so this, this verb here means to perfect or to bring something up to its full measure. It means to fill something full that is already half full. So it means to complete something that has already begun. There's a, there's a work of faith that God has already implanted in Abraham's life and in his heart in Genesis 15, and that work is being perfected, completed, brought to its full measure by Genesis 22. And then he uses this word fulfilled. He says, and the scripture, that is Genesis 15, 6, was fulfilled. And that word is pleirao. And the word pleirao also means to bring something already started to its intended completion, to close the loop, to close the circle. It means to complete that which you've begun. And, and the author of Hebrews thinks this is exactly what is going on with Abraham's story. He says in verse 7, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. This is what is happening in Genesis 22. He is being tested. The genuineness of his faith is being shown. It's being demonstrated. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, let us run with the endurance, the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The New Testament doesn't teach that a person can be justified by works of self-righteousness apart from faith. No, that's Paul's burden. Paul's burden is to address works religion. And the New Testament knows nothing of a secretive, ingrown faith that is not perfected in trials and shown to be genuine. Paul's emphasis is on a pioneering faith which justifies fully and sufficiently, and James's focus is, is on the works that demonstrate that faith to be of genuine character to be, character, to be living and active and real. I've got a tree in my backyard. I've got a bunch of trees that I planted a few years ago, and man, they are flourishing. Those trees are beautiful. Some of those, you know those choke cherry trees? You guys like those? They kind of have, they, they start off with those green leaves and then they turn like a bright maroon red. Man, I love those trees. Pat has one right in, a big one, like 30 years old, right in front of his yard. And I love those trees. Those trees are doing well. And I've got a bunch of other ones. I've got a Newport and I've got a bunch of other ones and they are just flourishing this year. But one of them died. Now, if you came to my backyard today and I asked you the question, which of those trees do you think is dead? You would know immediately. And the way that you would know is that you would see a tree that did not bud. You would see a tree that has no leaves. You would see a tree whose trunk and branches just look gray and dry and gnarled. And you would be able to say, that's definitely the dead one. And you'd be right. And Jesus said this, how do you, how do you know a tree? You know a tree by its fruit. That's how you know what's in it. You know what's in the tree because of the fruit that it produces in its life. And how do you know 
faith is genuine? Paul doesn't answer that question. James does. James says the way you know that faith is genuine, justifying faith is genuine, is in the works, the outworking of that faith in the Christian life. So I think we have two applications of this text today. One is corporate, one's for all of us, and the other is individual, for you individually. The corporate, corporate application is we have an obligation to acknowledge that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. But that faith is never alone. That faith is shown to be genuine in the outworking of loving kindness toward God and toward others. A living faith produces the fruit of righteousness. It does because that's what it is. And then we have an individual application. There may be some of you today who are in this room and you just, right now, you just have a mere profession of faith. You've just confessed the things that are true about Jesus. But you need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to believe on him for salvation. You believe that planes take off and land, good. Even the demons believe that. But today is the day you get on the plane. Today is the day you entrust your eternity all of your very self to the God who can take you where you cannot take yourself. And there are some in this room who may have thought that your works are all that matters. There are so many people in our culture today, if I may be honest with you, who think that in the final analysis that if there is a God, God is going to judge them like a scale, and hopefully they've just done more good, even if it's slightly more good than bad, and they have no faith at all. And both James and Paul would say, that's not faith. And you won't be justified on the basis of your works. God is in a heavenly bean counter. You will be justified by faith alone, and that faith is always accompanied by the outworking of that faith. And there may be some in this room who have genuinely come to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And the fact of the matter is, like Abraham, you find yourself in a trying circumstance. The fact of the matter is, you find yourself in a circumstance right now that God has willed for your life, and you don't understand this. You don't understand what you're being asked to do. You don't understand why you're in this place where you are. And you need to know that the testing of your faith, the burnishing of your faith, will prove it genuine. God is proving your faith right now. And that's weirdly comforting. I'll be honest with you. I've been there. I kind of still am to some degree <laughs> in a season like that. And it's strangely comforting to know that God is demonstrating that the faith I had when I was 15 years old and I confessed to Jesus and I received Christ is being shown to be real. The genuine article. Take comfort. God is still your God, and he's walking with you. Will you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you that this faith is good. James asked the question, what good is it? Well, it is good. It's good to believe the right stuff. It's good to trust that there is one eternal, immortal, infinite, personal creator of the universe. That's good. But God, it's also good for that faith to be a trust. And Lord, we, we confess right now that 
we trust in you to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We trust that you will save us. We trust that you will grow us up in the holy faith. We trust in you to provide for us, Lord. And we receive Christ. And God, there are some of us here this morning who must confess that we're in a hard season. And we have believed that you are true and we've believed in the one who is the embodiment of truth. But right now we, we're experiencing a hammering and a folding and a burnishing like steel. And God, we just pray that you would bring us through it. We pray that our faith would be as is on display, that it would be an encouragement to others, an encouragement to our children, an encouragement to our families, an encouragement to the people that we live with and work with that it would be a witness, Lord, as you bring us through. Thank you for your comforting presence for every person in this room who's going through a difficult phase. And we praise you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.